I'm Dana Lloyd. Welcome to Soul Sister Conversations, the podcast, where you will be inspired and empowered to connect more deeply with your authentic self as we explore topics of personal development, leadership, and spirituality. Your journey to your most authentic self starts right now. Fueled by a desire to fight the stigma of mental health, improve understanding, and empower members of the public to provide support to persons in stress, Elizabeth Eldridge founded Arpeggio Health Services, which provides mental health training. Today, we talk about the common mental health illnesses, red flags, and strategies to help yourself and others. We also talk about mental health in the workplace and how leaders and employees can recognize signs of stress and what they can do to help. Welcome, Elizabeth Eldridge, to Soul Sister Conversations. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you for being a guest. Uh, You're certainly going to be talking about an important conversation. It seems to be always a timely topic, mental health. Um, You are a certified psychological health and safety advisor. You have a bachelor's degree where you completed a clinical music therapy internship in mental health, which sounds really interesting. (laughs) And then you went further down the path with mental health, founding uh, Arpeggio Health Services in 2012. Um, what drew you to focus on mental health? Mm. Um, yeah, like you say, Dana, I have a, sort of a, a weird road to have gotten me to, <laughs> to the hat that I wear now. Um, I actually ended up, I wish that I had a really good story where I could say, oh, I, you know, I, I it had always been my passion or my dream to work in mental health. Um, but I, I didn't actually, that's not actually how it came to be for me. Um, when I was doing my undergrad at Acadia, um, I was uh, a blossoming music therapist and uh, part of our training for uh, for that program is practicum placements uh, with different populations. And uh, I ended up getting an internship in Ontario um, working in inpatient psychiatric care, uh, mainly in schizophrenia services. And the way that I came across that that internship, it was I like to think it was serendipity, I guess, looking back on it. But um serving the mental health population actually wasn't something at that point that I had any experience with. And I was sort of uh, thrown into it, uh, into the deep end of the pool, so to speak. Um, and uh, yeah, within, I remember coming home after my first day, I think going into my first day, I thought, what on earth do I expect here? What do I, you know, I didn't know mm-hmm. what I was getting myself into. But um, at the end of my first day, I felt like, oh, yeah, this is it. This is where I need to be. Um, mm. So I did have that sense uh, early on. And um, I, I worked in clinical care as a music therapist um, in uh, sort of different roles related to mental health. So outpatient community-based services, um, some inpatient staff, um, some uh, forensic care as well. Um, and uh, I was struck by uh, how often people would say to me things like, Oh, mental health. Wow. That, you know, that must be really scary working in that field. And I thought scary, what, you know, what would make it scary, right? It's a, Mm. it's a hospital setting. You know, if I said that I worked in pediatric care, people wouldn't say, oh, that must be terrifying. Although as someone who's not a parent, that would be really terrifying to me. (laughs) Um, Schizophrenia services, I can handle though. (laughs) Right. Um, So I guess just that stigma, um, you know, that surrounds mental health was something that uh, really struck me early on. And I ended up taking a, um, a course called Mental Health First Aid, just as part of my own professional development. And um, 
when I took that course, it was a, a total game changer for me. I thought people need to know that training like this is out there. And I happened to come across it online from from Googling it, you know, so I knew that it wasn't something that, that people really knew about. And uh, from there, that was sort of the beginning of my journey to um, become a, a, a trainer and consultant. And um, I went on to take some additional training, you know, that was not music therapy related okay. um, to enable me to to do the work that I do now. And so that brings you to Arpeggio Health Services. So what kind of services that you provide? It is a training, mental health training company, or do you provide other services as well? Uh, yeah, primarily training. Um, so we do the Mental Health First Aid Program, which is, uh, it's an evidence-based program of the Mental Health Commission of Canada. So it's a very reputable program. And it's uh, a certification-based program, which is nice. So kind of like when you take physical first aid and CPR training, you're actually certified in first aid. You know, this is the mental health version of that. Um, so we do a few different adaptations of that course. One is the basic training course, which is just what it sounds like. There's sort of a, uh, it's, it's quite general, quite broad, but, um, somewhat of a workplace spin on it, um, which is nice. Cause I think there's maybe an added layer of sensitivity when we, when it comes to talking about mental health in the workplace. Um, mm. and then we do a version that's specifically geared toward, uh, people who support youth. So kids, teens, and young adults, and then, uh, for, both formal and informal um, healthcare providers who support seniors, all about seniors' mental health. So meant for um, healthcare practitioners as well as family and friend caregivers. Uh, and then we do some programs around suicide prevention um, and uh, mental health in the workplace is a, a big one for us right now. Mm. Now, when you say it's a big one for us right now, is it because what's happening with COVID-19 that people are feeling they need to equip their employees or learn how to help each other a lot more? Yeah, I would say that that's a piece of it for sure. Um, I think the the COVID situation has put things really under a microscope as far as the way that we uh, support uh, support one another, you know, in the workplace. Um, but even prior to that, I would say the past, um, you know, five to seven or eight years, maybe there's been an increasing amount of uh, research published that indicates it's a really smart uh, investment for employers to make to invest in wellness initiatives and to, uh, to take steps to keep their people well, rather than you know, waiting for someone to get unwell, and then, you know, they're off on disability leave. So there's, uh, there's been a ton of research published in the last handful of years showing what a, a good return on investment employers get from investing in psychological health initiatives at work. So um, I think the the need has always been there. But now there's, there's research that shows us really clearly that, you know, this is not just a fluffy kind of nice to have thing in the workplace. It's actually a really smart business investment as well. Mm. And what are the kinds of, of, I guess, impacts that people would see in the workplace by taking this? Obviously, they're trying to maximize productivity, hoping that people aren't off sick if they're being able to cope. Like, what are the kinds of impacts, um, you know, having this kind of training? Can, you know, how can it help a business? Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, uh, something really interesting about the way that we now measure the impact of poor mental health um, within an organization or within a certain industry or the labor force at large, uh, the way that it used to be looked at was uh, absenteeism rates. That was sort of all that was looked at. So how much time are people missing because of mental health issues? So in other words, it would be looking at paperwork that says, 
you know, Susie is off on disability leave. What's the reason? What was filled out on that piece of paperwork? Um, so absenteeism certainly is one of the ways that uh, one of the impacts that poor mental health can have uh, within a workplace, but it's probably actually just the tip of the iceberg. Um, so much more uh, packing a lot more punch than absenteeism. Now it's recognized that something called presenteeism, that lost productivity, um, it probably actually costs organizations a lot more money. So an example that I often use of, of presenteeism, uh, let's say I'm uh, going through some little bump in the road, you know, nothing necessarily that's a, a diagnosable mental illness, but a hurdle that, you know, many of us face or will face or have faced at some point in time. Um, even something as simple as uh, I'm in, uh, I'm going through a really rough patch in my marriage or a spousal relationship. Um, so I think to myself, oh my goodness, I'm so stressed. All this, all this stuff is going on at home. You know what? Going to work will be a good distraction for me. So maybe I've considered taking a sick day, but you know what? No, my work needs me and it'll be good for me to get out of the house and focus on something else. Well, I get to work and Maybe by the time I look at the the clock, I set about on a work task. By the time I look at the clock, I go, oh my goodness, you know, an hour has passed and I've just been sitting here rereading the first sentence over and over and over again. And I couldn't even tell you what it said. Um, so there's some research now that actually indicates a lot of workplaces probably don't even know what full capacity looks like. True. In their that's labor a very work, good right? point. That's a, yeah. I hadn't heard the term presenteeism, but mm -hmm. I think that's the whole thing. Yeah, right. People, their body is there, but their mind and spirit is not. Yeah, exactly. Because of the distraction and, mm -hmm. and the lack of mindfulness. So that's that's a really that's a really good important point. What is the true capacity of an individual when they're in their work setting? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So you're there, but you're not there, right? <laughs> right. Um, and what that equates to, there's this gigantic sort of ripple outward from there. So if I am disengaged, um, it makes it more likely that I will sustain or cause a physical injury or incident on the job, right? If I'm that distracted, um, it ups the chances for all types of human error. So maybe even something small, like, uh, I end up having to redo, um, three out of the five tasks that I did today because there are mistakes on each of the spreadsheets that I've submitted or, or something like that. Um, even further out than that, when folks are disengaged, um, that those tend to be workplaces or organizations where there ends up being a lot of turnover because people aren't really invested in their jobs. They don't have a lot of loyalty maybe to the company. Um, so workplaces that see a whole lot of turnover, that's a huge cost to organizations. Um, if you think about the uh, the dollar value, you know, the price tag that you would attach to posting a position and someone has to comb through the applications and hold interviews. And then finally you hire someone, that person's there for a few weeks. Someone has to basically leave their post to train this person. And okay, now that person's standing on their own two feet. They're there for a few weeks and they leave and you start the process all over again. Huge cost to that. Um, and then even further beyond that, um, an organization that has a ton of turnover, if it's like a revolving door, I find this in, especially in, in smaller geographical areas, if an organization gets a reputation as being a not so great outfit to work for, mm -hmm. it's really, really hard to, for a company to 
uh, to bounce back from from damage to their their reputation, right? It means they're going to have a harder time uh, filling job vacancies. They might have to up incentive packages in order to fill those vacancies. So it kind of just goes, you know, on and on and on. Wow. Yes, that, that that's a huge impact on organizers, absenteeism, presenteeism. So how does the training um, impact presenteeism? So are these employ- employees learning how to be more present at work or leaders learning how to recognize signs of distractedness and so on? Yeah, it's kind of a bit of both. Um, so certainly it's important for people in leadership roles to have an understanding of, um, you know, for one piece would be the legal obligations that employers have. If I'm in a leadership role, I'm acting on behalf of the employer. So there are, uh, you know, rights and responsibilities that an employer and an employee have. Um, So important for leaders to understand that piece of it, but also how to, like you say, you know, identify signs that someone might be going through something tough and, and how to approach it in a way that's appropriate and effective, but, you know, also sensitive to, to the nature of, 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 you know, what's going on. Mental health can be hard to talk about. Um, But then the other side of it too, even for, you know, for members of um, on kind of every level within an organization, if you've got folks who are trained in a program like mental health first aid, it's actually more likely that let's say you and I are working on an assembly line together and I'm going through something tough. It's more likely that I'm going to feel comfortable Uh, talking about that with you, who I work with every day, and we're on the same sort of level within the workplace context, uh, then the likelihood that I'll say, you know what, I'm going to make an appointment with HR to tell them that I've been really stressed or to go to my manager or whatever. Um, So it's really important to have champions of, of mental health kind of throughout the organization so that employees feel like they always have someplace safe to turn. Um, So the training really empowers people to do that. And um, I, the, I guess if I had to sum up just in, in what, in one sentence, what people walk away with, uh, I think, and I hope it would be a sense of, huh, that's not that hard. You know, I could do that. I could, I, Hey, that's, that wasn't, uh, that wasn't super difficult to spot that, uh, you know, the person in the case study that we did was, you know, maybe not themselves and yeah, it's not so big and scary to have a conversation about mental health. It doesn't have to be a big, you know, very serious thing where everyone's crying and upset and having, you know, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. so it, you know, it can be something as simple as saying, you know, Bob, what's going on? You know, you don't seem yourself lately. Is there anything you want right. to talk about? Or it can be a very, very casual approach. So it feels like we're just learning to connect as humans so <laughs> with true. each other, right? And what I'm also hearing is that when you have this kind of training in your workplace or in your community or wherever, is that you're beginning to shift your culture because now you're developing a culture that is okay to talk about this stuff, that we recognize that we're all human, that we may be struggle, that you know, that we might be struggling. And uh, I think it really impacts culture. It's like, what kind of culture? Can we talk about our feelings at work? Can we talk about what we're going through, um, mm-hmm. you know, versus trying trying to keep them in like holding back a dam, which is so exhausting. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And I mean, it was a time not that long ago when uh, all things mental health, you know, they were they were seen as it was it was it was all taboo. And I think especially yeah. at work, right? Absolutely. It was it was seen as, you know, like you come in, you do your job and, 
you you clock out, right? So Leave check your, your package at the door. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And so like you say, it's it's about connecting as humans and recognizing that, you know, we all encounter challenges or barriers or bumps in the road. Or, you know, if you've if you've been alive since March of this year, you exactly. definitely I could say definitively you've encountered a bump in the road, right? You've been under a pressure <laughs> um, cooker, likely. <laughs> yes, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So for people to be able to and yeah, the the culture piece is is huge. When an organization makes an investment in the mental well-being of their employees, aside from actually equipping them with with tools to use, um, it also communicates this message that um, you know it, it almost gives a sense of permission. I guess you could say, Absolutely. right? That Absolutely. hey, listen, we can talk about this, yeah, and to say right. this is a value of our company, and you know, if someone needs help, we want you to speak up because we have help here for you, and. Um, you know, if, if someone who you work with, you think might be struggling, we want you to reach out to them and, you know, to, for the employer to support all of those pieces, it, it really speaks volumes. Absolutely. Yeah, definitely. Whatever leaders speak about, uh, that's what they say, you know, you, you value in an organization. People see, see it as, oh, the leader knows or thinks that's important. And mm -hmm. people are probably saying, thank heavens, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, that people yeah. feel that it is because we certainly did or come from a time when things were taboo or shushed, you know, hushed. And, and I like what you're saying is that this can be easy. I, and I think mm -hmm. you're right. When we think mental health, we, I think we think extreme cases, we're not going to be mm -hmm. equipped to handle that. And, uh, uh, just simple as saying, hi, how you, how are you doing? Truly not the polite, how are you doing? Yeah. <laughs> how, are, how are you doing? I know that you, you know, your child moved away to university or that you were going through this, you know, mm -hmm. how are things? And it's amazing to me when I've done that to other people, just saying, you know, how are you doing people that it's like they trust you and they drop into a vulnerable space and will actually mm -hmm. tell you, right. Mm -hmm. They're dying to tell someone because it's, to keep it in, it eats away at you. So yeah. you can definitely see how that would impact your productivity in the workplace. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. It and it doesn't have to be, I mean, yeah, your example is a great one. Actually asking, how are you? Not just how are you with the expectation of fine, thanks. How are you? Rhetorical. You know, yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I so, don't really want to know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And the same is true when we talk about mental health. You know, if if you have the sense that someone might be struggling. And you ask, oh, how are you? But your body language and your tone indicates to that person that, oh, my goodness, please don't say anything that's going to make me feel uncomfortable. Well, you know, they're probably not going to open up to you, right? So, yeah, there's a lot that we can do as far as just setting the tone that, hey, listen, this is it's it's safe to talk about. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Do you know or have you a sense of if mental health issues are trending upward? You know, it certainly seems that way. And um, I don't know if it's always been that way. And now we're just talking about it. So there are awareness. I'm just curious what your sense is on that. Yeah, I'm not sure. I think it's probably, uh, in, in my humble opinion, I would say it's probably a little bit of both. It's probably that we are seeing somewhat of an increase, but probably also that um, we're we're talking about it more. So people are maybe hopefully more likely to, to reach out for help and to have. So what that means is, um, you know, we're going to see the numbers trend up even if there aren't actually more cases right so the 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 stats now say that at least one in three Canadians will experience a mental health problem at some point in their life and the reason that qualifier at least is in there is that mm. we know based on the uh, you know the the data that's collected around the number of Canadians using the publicly funded 
mental health care system, we can collect numbers on that, right? Right. Um, but what we know about mental health is that not everyone who needs help actually gets help, right? There are a lot of people who just struggle in silence. Um, So I think that we've come a long way. We're certainly headed in the right direction as far as eradicating stigma is concerned. Um, Still have a long ways to go, but yeah, probably more people are being diagnosed and and getting help now. Um, But I think the the lifestyles that a lot of us live are um, maybe not conducive to having good mental health, right? So Mm. um, if we're not, uh, if I, I was just uh, chatting with someone this morning uh, about how different uh, education, the education system is now around teaching kids about health. Um, so what what I always kick off all of my presentations with is is talking about how when we hear the word health people often think of that equating to just physical health, only the physical piece. Um, But there's more to overall health than just physical health. There's our social health, like our relationships with other people and a sense of meaning in life and all of that stuff. And mental health, of course, is a piece of the pie. Um, So that's something that still, you know, many adults have never really pondered. And, uh, you know, now kids in school are being taught that, hey, in health class, it's more than like when I'm 35. So when I was in school, you know, that wasn't a thousand years ago. Um, health class was kicking a soccer ball around the gym. That, that's right. what it was. Right. And so, and learning about the Canada food guide. It's, yeah, that's right. Exactly. Exactly. So, you know, is it any wonder that most adults today don't have mental health on their radar? You know, we were never taught that mental health was a real thing. It was never legitimized in a lot of people's minds. Um, so that's a yeah. really good point, Elizabeth, especially for people, you know, you say you're 35, I'm older than you again, for, you know, that we're maybe we're say, talking 35 plus that, you know, it's been, it was, it's, I don't know how long it's been since they've started mentioning mental health in schools, but really, I think we can say it's really a new trend. So people mm-hmm. like us who are already well growing up, you know, we didn't have that that education from our background to say, hey, there could be some problems in this area of your life at some point, that it isn't just Mm -hmm. about obesity or um, eating uh, vegetables or, you know, walking around the block that it, Mm -hmm. you know, or how many cups of milk are you drinking? It's just, it's far more, um, you know, wider, you know, broader perspective than that. So yeah, yeah, it's so true. Yeah. And I think it's, it's important to recognize too, that, um, our physical health, you know, of course that's important, but it can be supported by good mental health, right? Like those different pieces of, uh, of, uh, the different components of health, they all work together. They're not in silos, right? So, um, I know for, for myself, if I am, eating well and I'm getting my regular runs in and uh, I'm, you know, outside getting some fresh air. So if I'm taking care of my physical health, I'm getting enough sleep. That's another big one. Um, And if I'm taking care of my social well-being, so I'm engaging in uh, whether it's work or volunteer opportunities or whatever it might be, but things that add meaning to my life. Um, I'm taking time to nurture social connections, my relationships with other people. if I am doing well in those two, you know, pieces of the pie that can support my good mental health, right? So all of those pieces are are very much intertwined. And what you see on the, the flip side of that coin, unfortunately, um, we see this with, uh, with stress very, very frequently. Um, people are, we know from research that 
people on average are more likely to visit their uh, family doctor about physical health issues than mental health issues. So if I go to my doctor and say, oh, I'm not sleeping well. And when I wake up in the morning, I just have knots in my stomach. It's really affected my appetite. I find that I'm crabby and moody. And you know, those would not be um, things that would be typical for me. If I, if I describe those things and I'm coming at it from you know, uh, purely a physical health standpoint, um, mm. my doctor might look for a physical cause. Um, and it might be, I mean, when I was working in clinical care, I saw clients who had some, some of them for years had been back and forth to, um, you know, allergy specialists and uh, different headache specialists. Uh, they had done, uh, you know, sleep sleep study things because their sleep was poor, like all of these things. And then eventually they end up diagnosed with an anxiety disorder. The anxiety piece is treated and then, oh, like waving a magic wand. Hey, I'm sleeping well. All, like all of my physical health issues magically have corrected themselves, right. right? So if we don't understand the role that something like stress can play and how it can really wreak havoc on our physical well-being, um, if we don't have that piece on our our radar at all, we're really doing a disservice to uh, to our overall health, right? Because it is all mm -hmm. all so very Absolutely. intertwined. Oh, so intertwined. And you said one of the reasons really why you got involved in this line of work is really to address that stigma around mental health. Can you address that? Like, what are the stigmas that are still um, lingering around mental health? Because I wish we could say that it, there weren't, but there, it's, there still is, I believe. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Unfortunately, it is the stigma is the number one cited barrier in Canada. The reason, in other words, that uh, that people who are struggling and know they could benefit from getting support don't reach out for help. So it's a fear of discrimination, a fear of prejudice. Um, in a workplace context, lots of times, I mean, I've heard people say countless times things like, uh, well, you know, I don't think I should be reaching out to my employee assistance program right now because I'm up for a promotion, you know, so I'm worried it might affect that or I don't want my boss to know or, um, yeah, so there's definitely this idea still in some people's minds that uh, to struggle with your mental health is a weakness. It means you're a weak person or you have no coping skills or or you're crazy or, you know, you, you right. should, you're never going to be a productive member of society. You're never going to be a good parent or a good worker or a good partner or a good friend. Or um, So we need to recognize that mental health issues, just like physical health issues, are not a testament in any way to a person's, you know, character or, or anything of that nature. Um, so an analogy that I often use is uh, if I shared with you that I have diabetes and I'm insulin dependent, I can't imagine that anyone would think, um, oh my goodness, I can't believe she just shared that. That's so embarrassing. Oh, wow. Now I, now I don't know how to act around her because she has diabetes. You know, this is so uncomfortable. I have to walk on eggshells. Or I can't imagine anyone thinking, huh, diabetes. That's so weird. You know, I would not have pegged her for a diabetic. She doesn't seem like the type. You know, she seems to have a pretty regular life. And I didn't know diabetics could do that. Um, people probably wouldn't think, oh, diabetes, give me a break. 
I've heard that one before. You know, she must right. be really lazy. She just, she, she just doesn't want to go into work or she's using diabetes as a way to get out of doing something or. And it know. wouldn't impact your ability to get a promotion. Uh, you know, absolutely. In, in, in the, right? Yes. Yeah. Imagine that. I mean, it sounds ridiculous to. It sounds to it totally ridiculous. Yeah. Right? To think that you would not promote someone because of a physical ailment per se. Yes. Absolutely. That, and even when you're saying that and saying it out loud, you realize how much stigma I think there still is around it because I think there is the fear of the fear of productivity. Will this be a, a problem person or will they be able to fix it? Mm. You know, it's not, you know, like a broken arm or something. So I, I'm wondering if that's, I, that's probably some of the stigma is, yeah, around, I think a, a leader or, or people don't know what to do with it, how to help the person come out of it because yeah. we can't see it mm-hmm. tangibly, right? Exactly. It's not like a broken bone on an x-ray, right? And right. And the other piece of it too, you know, my broken bone and your broken bone and Bob's broken bone, they're all going to look pretty much the same under an x-ray and the treatment probably for all of us is going to be pop a cast on it and then go back a few weeks later and get the cast taken off, then you're right as rain. Um, however, if myself and you and Bob all have have depression or an anxiety disorder, it's likely going to look really different for each of us and treatment and what works and what, you know, what works for, um, as far as family and friends support, as far as, you know, medication or not medication or lifestyle changes or the ways that the workplace might be able to, to support us in getting better. Like all of those things would probably be different for each of us. So it can be a little more complex than, than when it comes to a physical health issue. So how can we fight the stigma around mental health? How can we improve that? What can we do to uh, to help help that situation? Because it feels like something that I think having more conversations like this where we gain more knowledge. And- mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. Having those conversations, um, you know, like the, the Bell campaign in January, not that we want right. to talk about uh, January and snow being on the ground yet, but <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, exactly what their campaign says. Let's talk, right? So right. being comfortable having those conversations. Um, another piece that I always really emphasize in training, um, language misuse is a real contributor to stigma. So if I'm misusing language that's meant to describe a mental health issue, if I'm using it in an insensitive way or throwing those terms around, it really... Well, so I'll give you a specific example. Let's say um, you and I are co-workers and I say to you... Dana, I'm so depressed. I didn't get that promotion I was up for. Oh, well, am I depressed? No, I'm I'm having an emotional response to my circumstances, right? A pretty a pretty reasonable emotional response. So instead of I'm so depressed, um, maybe it's more appropriate for me to say I'm frustrated, I'm disappointed, I'm upset, something right. of that nature. And I know it sounds like a very teeny tiny thing, but what happens over time when language is misused over and over again? Um, it drives home this message that uh, feeling sad and depression, well, they're pretty much the same thing, right? Mm. So in a workplace environment, that might be a, a set of circumstances where you'd hear people say, gee, I heard Bob, w- Bob was off for uh, for depression. I mean, what's his problem? Like, I've felt a little down in the dumps before, but I haven't had to miss time from work for it. You know, give me a break. Right. right? So over time, you know, the the specific words that we use, the, the language we use around mental health when we are talking about it, um, it can really carve out specific impressions. Lots of times, 
false impressions or it can can further that that stigma. So it's really important that um, that language is is not misused and that it's flagged when it is misused. There's actually a really, really cool resource that uh, that I'll recommend to listeners um, if that has piqued your interest. The Mental Health Commission of Canada um, has put together this uh, free tool called the Safer Language Reference Guide. And it's, like I say, free for download if you go to the Mental Health Commission's website. Um, and what it is, you can print it off and uh, tack it up on the bulletin board in your staff room or wherever. And it's a little chart of some commonly used pieces, commonly misused, sorry, pieces of language. And then it gives a little blurb about why it's insensitive to use those those words or those pieces of language um, willy nilly, you know, to throw them around. And sure. then it gives you ideas for replacement words. Um, so for example, it might say uh, the the problematic phrase might be, oh, my boss is totally psycho. And uh, then it explains that that word psycho has been misused over time, like it stems from the word uh, psychosis or psychotic illness. Um, and that's right. a, a category of mental illnesses that are very much misunderstood. Um, and, you know, so so it gives a bit of the sort of the history there. And then in the next column, it says instead say, you know, I'm really frustrated with my boss right now or say like something right. of that nature. Yeah, because yeah, words really have power. Word. Absolutely, they do. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and and I think you're right because when we we you we misuse words like depression and make it synonymous with sad, we actually sort of lessen the impact for the person who's actually going through it. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I think, and and I think again, this all stems and points towards the kind of culture you want to create in your workplace, your communities, mm -hmm. and what um, you know what again what people are talking about. You're going to pay attention to because when I hear this, I think, how do you get people to begin change? their language when it's been mm. so entrenched. But I think it is education. As you talk about, put it up in the board. We see it, little reminders. Yeah. We can make a little tweak here and there about how we show up and really depict the truth of, you know, how you're feeling. I'm just feeling sad. I'm not feeling depressed. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It doesn't have to be a big, you know, earth shattering. And I mean, culture doesn't change overnight, right? So no, for sure. It's all a, it's all a process. And, um, you know, typically when people are misusing those pieces of language, they are certainly not meaning to be offensive at no. all. Right. It's just like no. you say that they, most people, their response, if it's flagged will be something like, Oh my gosh, I never thought of it that way. And then, you right. know, they they understand that, hey, that might trivialize the experience of someone who lives with depression and fights that battle every day. Um, so it's, you know, as Oprah says, when we know better, we do better, right? <laughs> Absolutely. Because we're very patterned, conditioned beings, right? Mm -hmm. We do most, we show up mostly in our lives in forms of habit and habits are hard to break. But once we're aware of them, uh, you can begin to change them, especially if it's, uh, it, you know, it helps other people. Um, that's mm -hmm. important. Yeah. Um, well, uh, I was had a uh, conversation with a friend and as I'm saying this, maybe it was you who was delivering the training, but she was, <laughs> did a professional development day. So maybe you'll hear your own words, uh, <laughs> reflected back to you. And, but she was basically saying that, uh, what the instructor was saying is that if everybody who wanted mental health help, um, you know, suddenly decide they'd like to get it, there's not going to be enough mental health counselors 
or help for everyone so that we have to actually move to a peer-to-peer system, which I think mm-hmm. is why um, what you're doing is so important. As we all gain these sk- skills and tools, we can help our friends and family. They may not necessarily need to go see an actual counselor. Maybe they just need people who listen in their mm-hmm. life, right? Yeah. Um, is that true? Would, would you say that's an accurate assessment? I would say that's very accurate. Yeah. Um, I mean, of course, it's hard to know. There, uh, the jury's still out about how many people are actually affected by mental distress, you know, at some point. Mm-hmm. My own personal thought is that I I believe if we are fortunate enough to live a long life, it is almost impossible to get there without having encountered some kind of bump in the road. That's, you know, sure. my own personal thinking. Yeah. Um, and yeah, you're you're exactly right. Um there there's we're already working within a very strapped system as far as resources are concerned um and not everyone necessarily needs uh you know if if i'm struggling with my stress level and it's having you know a bit of a toll on on my ability to be present when i'm having dinner with my family and complete my work tasks well i don't necessarily need a bed in an inpatient psychiatric treatment hospital you know i might just need to make some lifestyle changes it might be something as simple as me saying okay, you know what? I'm going to press the pause button uh, tonight and I'm going to be in bed at eight o'clock and I'm going to have time to read this really good book. And, you know, reading is something that always helps me to de-stress. I'll get a really good night's sleep and that'll be a good... So sometimes just taking charge of our own mental health, having our finger on the pulse at what is effective at managing our own stress level or improving our mood if we're feeling down in the dumps. Um, It sounds really, really teeny tiny but um, and easy and easy (laughs) I know easy in theory right the words are easy but you know it's it's doing it that uh, well I'll use myself as an example I'll tell you I have to be such a drill sergeant with uh with getting enough sleep that's something that I've always really struggled with um but I'm in such a better place with it now because I can, I recognize that, you know what, I have a habit in the evenings when I open up my computer, I'll think, oh, I'll just respond to these couple emails and then a couple more. I know that that's a habit I have and I know it's not good for my stress level. Um, So I actually have an alarm set on my phone every night where my phone goes off and a message pops up on my phone that says, Elizabeth, put your computer away and shut it down. Yes. Yeah. But, and I mean, I, you would think working in the field that I work in, that this stuff would be, people say to me all the time, Oh, this must be just second nature to you. And I say, no, it's not. It's not. It's still, (laughs) it's hard for me, but that's how I can really empathize with how difficult it is for every other person. Right. But we just, we have to find ways of, uh, you know, building our own sort of, um, putting tools in our resilience toolbox, I guess. Right. Right. Um, so that when we're not, you know, none of us wants to think about, uh, finding ourselves in a crisis situation, but you know, if, if that were to happen and I open up my toolbox and there's nothing in there, then, you know, that's, that's when things can, can really get off track quite quickly. So, um, if I'm being proactive about my mental health and, um, taking steps to keep it good when it's good rather than waiting for it to get bad and then thinking, well, maybe I'll make an appointment with the doctor maybe then. Right. Right. It makes more sense to certainly to be proactive. Yeah. Mm, For ourselves and reaching out to one another, both. Absolutely. Yeah. Cause I certainly think we need to be helping each other more. And, and it is this, I think the idea of just creating a culture in your home, within your friendship groups mm-hmm. of not even just in the workplace, you know, of 
it's safe to talk about this, that it, you know, you're not going to be judged or made fun of or go, Oh, come on, everybody deals with that. Mm -hmm. Or, you know, that, you know, that when you say it, people are going to actually hear you. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And, you know, something that I've heard a lot is uh, people will say, well, you know, my friends know that if they were ever going through a hard time, they know that they could reach out to me, they know they could ask me for help. They, right. Well, when someone is struggling, I mean, that's, that's, that's a good place to start maybe, but if someone is really struggling, um, it can be hard to ask for help, right? It can Absolutely. be hard to say, Absolutely. Hey, I'm going through something tough. Can, can I draw on some support for you? Or I might not even know, um, you know, how, how you might be able to help me. Right. I might think there's right. no point in me even telling that person, cause what are they going to do about it? So part of the burden that we can take off of that person who's struggling is instead of expecting them to come to us and ask for help. Um, if we can pick up on signs and any sign, you Absolutely. know, no matter how subtle, if we can take that, those signs seriously and recognize that, Hey, you're not going to go wrong by saying something simple, like, listen, is everything okay? You know, you seem Absolutely. kind of stressed or this or that. So that's one thing that we can, uh, yeah, a wonderful thing we can do for anyone in our, our circle, friends, family, coworkers, for sure. Absolutely. Yeah. Cause I know I'm that friend that I'm always on. I'm like the watchdog. Then <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, I haven't heard from you in a while. Everything, oh. <laughs> and, you know, and recognizing that, and maybe it's a bit of an intuitive sense, but there's one thing I know is that is to be able to walk towards someone. Cause I know people will not walk towards you and ask for help willing, you know, willingly. Yeah. And sometimes I'll, takes is someone to say, Hey, I'm here. If you need to talk, I know that, you know, I, mm -hmm. I remember you were going to, you know, do, you know, go through this thing. Is everything all good with that? Because yeah. I think there's such value in that. And, uh, and maybe perhaps for me, I'm not as afraid to have those conversations. Um, and, and, but, but you can certainly always use more tools, which is really how I found you. I was searching for oh, what, can I, what more training can I take to get more tools to help people, especially in the, the field that I'm in. Mm -hmm. um, what are some of the common mental health illnesses that we should be aware of? Um, anxiety and depression are, are the most common. Um, and that's probably surprising to no one. <laughs> right, absolutely. But, uh, yeah. Um, so uh, I think two of the big misconceptions. Um, one is that Oh, stress and anxiety, those are pretty much the same thing. You know, oh, everyone's felt anxiety before. Everyone's felt, and similarly with depression, oh, everyone's felt a little down before. So, uh, lots of times people don't understand that there's a difference between. Yeah, the the emotion, right? Or feeling stressed, of course, you know, who has not felt stressed? Of course, we've all felt stressed before. Um, but it's very a very different animal when it becomes uh, a, an issue that really makes it difficult for you to take any satisfaction or joy out of your day-to-day -day life um, and or uh, fulfill your daily tasks, you know? So that's, so one of the misconceptions, I guess, is that, uh, you know, emotions and mental health issues are, are one and the same. Um, and I would say, uh, another misconception is that, um, well, you know, if it gets to the point where it's diagnosed or diagnosable, then, uh, boy, it's going to take a long time to get well. And it's going to, you're going to be on medication for the rest of your life, or you're going to be, you know, there, there are all kinds of ideas like that, that are just plain and simple, not, not true. Um, so to the, uh, an example that I use often to illustrate stress versus anxiety. Um, let's say I'm working on a tight deadline, uh, for, for a big, 
work project and a promotion hangs in the balance depending on how well I complete this this project. Am I going to feel stressed about it? Yeah, you betcha, right? Um, and stress is not necessarily a bad thing, right? It means that right. I'm invested in this work and it's important to me. And um, so, of course, it makes sense. I'm going to feel a spike in my stress level. Um, if I can if I can see the light at the end of the tunnel where I can go, oh, you know what? I'm going to hand that assignment into my boss tomorrow. And boy, oh boy, isn't that going to feel great? I'm going to do something fun to celebrate that night. I'm going to go to bed really early and have the best sleep ever. Or I'm going to. So even when I'm in the midst of feeling those symptoms of stress, I can still imagine what it will be like to no longer experience them, right? I can see the right. the end point there. With anxiety, it is a, a an overwhelming sense of stress that never goes away and stays very intense. And if it's not one thing, then it's 10 other things. Um, so it's uh, it's typically something that really impacts a person's quality of life. Um, your mind is always going to the worst case scenario. You know you can't uh, you can't enjoy being away on vacation with your family because your mind is going to what if this happens? What if that happens? What if our hotel room got broken into? Well, then I do this. Well, no, then this could happen. Well, then and so that takes you out of that present moment. You're not able to just enjoy those moments with your family. Mm-hmm. Um, and then how does that show up in the workplace? Oh, you know, yeah. if, people, if you see people, you know, people are stressed, but that you're actually looking for anxiety where you think that person might be struggling in general. Yeah, it's well, I think as as lay persons, you know, we don't have to be able to differentiate between, you know, is it a high level of stress or is it an anxiety disorder? Because um, we're not, you know, diagnosing or anything like that. Um, but I think a good rule of thumb is if this person's behavior is different than I than what I know the norm to be for them, then that at least you know, warrants a conversation. Um, even with relatively mild levels of stress, um, lots of people could uh, could their quality of life could be improved by by having that conversation or being offered support. Right. So right. I think our job is is relatively simple in that um, we you know the job a diagnostician has is to look at all of these complex symptoms and to fit these things that have lots of gray areas into these tight little boxes. You know, I certainly don't envy the job of a, of a diagnostician. It's very, very, mm. you know, complex world. But for us, yeah, all that we're really looking at is um does it look like this person maybe could use a hand? You know, if the answer to that yeah. is yes, then we're we're certainly out nothing for for initiating the conversation at least. Right, absolutely. Hmm. And um, what are some intervention strategies for people in mental health um, crisis? So then, if you're a leader or a friend, you see it, and you're really not sure what you should do yourself if you really don't have the skills, unless of course they maybe take your training, and then they would. (laughs) (laughs) What, or maybe that's what you can speak to, or what are the kinds of things that people would learn in your training that they could actually then employ to help someone in a mental health? situation. Yeah. So I, I liken mental health first aid to physical first aid and CPR training. Um, if I'm trained, let's say I am trained in physical first aid and I happen to be first on the scene at a car accident. Well, the very first thing I do is call 911. So paramedics are going to be there as soon as they can. But now in the meantime, until professional help arrives, I might be able to kind of be be the bridge for that person, right? So I might be able to um, mitigate things from from worsening. I can provide comfort to that person while we wait for help to get there. Um, maybe I, you know, splint a person's leg or something like that. That may so the role that I play, um, despite not being a 
healthcare professional or doctor or whatever, mm-hmm. um, it's potentially a life-saving role, right? Um, so the same holds true for, for mental health first aid. So we look at um, how to have conversations when we see signs that someone might not be themselves. Um, and then also intervening in mental health crisis situations. So we talk about um, intervening when someone has overdosed on a substance, um, okay. suicide intervention, um, uh, supporting someone who's in the midst of a panic attack, uh, how to approach a situation where trauma is involved. Um, so a lot of a lot of what the training focuses on really is just getting your uh, confidence there so that you feel like, uh, you know, like if you're thrown into this situation, thrown into a situation you haven't seen coming, um, you can, you've got a starting place. Okay. Here's how I'm going to start the conversation. Oh, wait, did I do this yet? Did I do that? So you've got a bit of a, it's, it's not a rule book. It's more of a conversation guide, I guess you'd say. Um, but it does give you uh, a really practical framework because the worst thing um, for, for anyone's mental health, I think is to be in a situation where you think, oh my goodness, I have no idea what to say. Uh, shoot, I just said X, Y, Z. Should I have said that? Did they think I meant this? Or, oh no, did I make right. it worse? Or did I think, you know, that's very mentally taxing for for someone to bear. So uh, if we can have confidence in our ability to help and have some, you know, practical, tangible, concrete skills that we can employ when when the situation arises, um, that's going to position us well to, to provide effective help for that person. But also, um, you know, for, for the sake of our own mental well-being, you know, we'll feel like, um, you know what, I did, I did everything that I could do. Again, much like being first on the scene at a car accident, regardless of the outcome, if I can walk away from that situation thinking, you know what, I did everything that I possibly possibly could have in that situation. Um, mm. We can, you know, hopefully be, be at peace for that with that. Yeah, that's great. And um, is there anything else that we haven't talked about that you think is, is relevant or important for people to know with respect to uh, mental health? Uh, hmm, good question. Uh, well, one, one resource that I will recommend, um, for, for workplaces that are taking steps to adopt policies and practices to improve psychological health in the workplace, there's a really great document called the National Standard on Psychological Health and Safety in the Workplace, um, developed by the CSA group. So, um, it's, it's, very much evidence-based and essentially it lays out all the best practices um, for organizations who are are working toward those positive changes. So certainly a, a tool that I would recommend to anyone who's in a you know, maybe a leadership position or HR, or if you're positioned within your organization to to make some changes there, the national standard gives a, a great starting point. Mm. And of course, um, self-care is always in a, a, a great I'm thinking a great message to end on because you talk about you practice what you preach that you actually do three <laughs> things to get you to your happy place. And I thought they were great, you know, a, cu- a cup of coffee, a good book and time with your pup Ruby. Yeah. And I think it's this, you know, it's that's the amount, you know, that's how easy it can be to take you back to a place of lightness. And I know it's not always easy to get there uh, when you're dealing with something big, but um the fact that you focus on that simplistic message of being able to care for yourself. Um, I just have a a last few questions. Um, How does mental health impact people's ability to lead an authentic life? We talk about that a lot on this show, authenticity. Mm, um, I think one of the big uh, challenges I've heard from, uh, from 
people who lived with undiagnosed uh, mental health issues long term, um, eventually you can get to a point where it's actually difficult to discern um, the self from the illness, right? Mm. Um so uh, a good example, actually, Margaret Trudeau, Justin Trudeau's mother, uh, lives with bipolar disorder, and uh, she's she speaks about it very openly. She's an amazing advocate for mental health, and uh, she described how uh, she was she was diagnosed with bipolar later in life and had likely lived with symptoms for many years. And she said, at that point, when I was diagnosed, um, I went through this really disorienting experience where I was weeding back through. Uh, through, you know, different memories of interactions I'd had with other people, things I'd thought, things that I had done. And I was asking myself, you know, did I really think that thought? Or was that a symptom of my illness? You know? Um, So yeah, if it's if it's left undiagnosed, untreated, unmanaged, um, long term, I think uh, the ability to live an authentic life, certainly there, there are barriers and challenges to that because you can almost lose sight of um, what makes you, you, and how do I differentiate that between uh, a mental health problem, right? Um, mm. Something, so, you know, the goal with a mental health problem, anytime we encounter a, a bump in the road, the idea is that we'll take the bull by the horns and do what we can to deal with it and get past it so we can get back to, uh, you know, leading the life that we want to live and engaging in the world and in a way that's meaningful and satisfying to each of us. Um, So yeah, sadly, it can can be easy to lose sight of that when mental Mm. health issues go untreated for a long time. Sure. And what has become abundantly clear to you? Mm. Uh, That every single human on the planet has mental health or that it, uh, or, or falls somewhere along the spectrum. Um, this is something I, I had an interesting conversation with a, a colleague the other day where I said, uh, I talked about, uh, how my social health, my feeling of connection with other people and with the world around me and the connection with what I do for a living, um, is really fed by the, it, I guess, just, just knowing how truly universal, um, this this stuff is, you know, this world that I'm immersed in talking about mental health uh, day in and day out. It's something that I feel really passionate about, feel really strongly about. Um, but I, I guess for me, knowing that it 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 is relevant, it impacts every person, you know, like every person, any age, any any country in the world, any socioeconomic status and, you know, anyone, right? So I guess it's something that helps me to feel very uh, grounded in my work and and get satisfaction out of my work is, yeah, that feeling of connection that we are all, you know, we are all human, right? So we do all have mental health. Yeah. (laughs) Mm. And lastly, what does the world need most? Oh, what a tricky question. Uh, okay, okay, I'm just going to give my uh, my very honest answer as I sit here watching the, the face of Ruby, who you, you mentioned earlier, <laughs> she's in my bio, my Weimar and her pop. Um, I would say uh, this is a completely my biased perspective, but puppy snuggles are... Uh. <laughs> Very, very good for the mental health, or that's been my experience anyway. (laughs) 
That is so true. That yeah, <laughs> that's that a different answer I've received, and that's and it's an excellent one. Thank you um, so much for your time. This has been a wonderful conversation. Oh, my pleasure, truly. It's been great. I appreciate you having me. And and lastly, if people want to connect with you, you have a blog that they can sign up for. Where can they find that? Yeah. So if you visit elizabetheldridge.com, um, I do a blog called The Workplace Wellness Weekly. Um, and it comes out every Wednesday, of course, going with the W's. Um, <laughs> so yeah, if you go to elizabetheldridge.com slash blog, um, you will, uh, you'll find it there along with information about our different training programs. And um, yeah. Lots of uh, we're doing lots of virtual sessions right now, of course. So um, all of that information is is right on the website. Um, you can find us on social media as well. So um, really active on on Facebook too, Elizabeth Eldridge Consulting. Okay, awesome. Well, you know where to find her, and I'm sure you will have some people reaching out because I think it's been a a great conversation and, and a much needed one. So thank you again for your time. Great, thank you. That was such a great conversation. If you loved it too, subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss an episode. Please go to iTunes to rate and review this podcast. And if you want to continue the conversation, connect with Soul Sister Conversations on the Facebook and Instagram pages. You can also find me on Instagram and Facebook at Dana Lloyd Leadership, on Twitter at Coach Dana underscore Lloyd, and of course on LinkedIn. See you next week.